Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of Exodus. Uh, the book of Exodus. I'm not going to be long this morning, and let me tell you why. Uh, I have another child on the way, um, and I've got some, uh, some, uh, uh, some meat on the smoker. So, just throwing that out there. Uh, the book of Exodus. As you're turning there, let me, uh, let me see if something resonates with, uh, with some of the, maybe perhaps the younger people. Uh, but, but our world is more anxious and more stressed today, it feels like, than maybe ever before. Does anybody agree with that? Anybody like, now some of you older folks are retired or just got into retirement, you're like, I got no stress in the world, actually. Um, but, 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 but for us younger folks, here's what, here's what one, one article put it. It says, anxiety is increasing among adults under the age of 50 in the U.S. with more rapid increase among younger adults. To prepare for a healthier adulthood and given direct and indirect via 24-7 media exposure to anxiety-provoking world events, preventative measures that can be bolster uh, healthy coping responses and or treatment seeking seem warranted on a broad scale. From a recent study uh, to to study these uh, trends. And uh, and what's, what's amazing is that this seems to be the case even amongst the followers of Christ even amongst those who would claim that they follow and love the Lord Jesus Christ, still find within themselves, perhaps due to our 24-7 news-natured uh, or site, you know, society we live in, completely saturated by advertisements and, and everyone wanting your time, uh, perhaps even you as a Christian feel overwhelmed, burned out, stressed out, ready to give up perhaps and my question for us this morning is how did we get here how do we get here and, and and more importantly perhaps where do we go from here because society has society like this is this is what's so amazing is the, the it's not just christians who realize that this phenomenon is happening in society like society at large those who would even uh, not profess the name of christ are realizing that this is damaging for our health it's damaging for our health, and so everyone's going to come at this with a different response. Of, Here's how we fix it. Right? Maybe you should get off social media, which maybe you should. Uh, perhaps you should stop watching uh, Fox News or, uh, or some other news source. But a few weeks ago, I mentioned in one of the sermons, I, I was trying to look through my notes, and it must have been one of those things where I don't have it in my notes, because uh, I couldn't find where I referenced this. But all of God's laws were given to the children of Israel to be of such a nature that when the other nations looked at them, they would be glad for the laws that Israel had. And maybe you remember that, I remembered it, or maybe I was just in conversation with somebody else. It all runs together this late into the pregnancy. But well, let's just dive into it. Exodus chapter 20. Look at it with me here. We'll start reading in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands, 
Of those who love me and keep my commandments, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, let's talk for a moment because I know that that in this church we're Christians. We're Christians. I don't know. Hopefully that's not a surprise for you. What I mean by this is that oftentimes when we talk about the law of God, we oftentimes think of the law as something negative and not something that's positive. Furthermore, we sometimes find ourselves wondering or wondering what is our relationship to the law of God and to the Old Testament? Do we have to obey it? So let's very quickly wade into these waters, try to make it clear. And we'll see how far we get. Uh, so some four points here, real quick, before I get into the, the main thing I want to talk about, which is Sabbath rest today. Uh, number one, the scriptures are clear that Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament law. The scriptures are clear in this. Romans 10:4. let me give you a few of them. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Paul in the book of Romans saying that for, for, for the Christians, for those who follow Jesus, Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness, if you believe in him. Galatians 3, he says it again this way in verse 23 through 25. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. You can see why, as Christians, we often struggle with the angst and anxiety of what are we to do with all the Old Testament? What are we to do with the law of God? Uh, the way Paul often talks about it is like he did in verse 23 is like it was imprisoning us, right? Keeping us until the, until the day Jesus would come and reveal faith to us. He also says this in Ephesians 2, verse 15. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And so you can see from these scriptures alone that for the Christian, the, the, the idea that, that we are to be bound by the law no longer applies. Right? Christ fulfilled the law. This is what Jesus means when he showed up on the scene and says he is there to uh, fulfill the law. It's also what he means when he says that one jot or one tittle will not pass away until all be fulfilled. So that's point number one. Point number two, therefore, as followers of Jesus, God does not expect you and I to live by all of Israel's laws. Romans 6.14 says this, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. 
In Romans 7, 4, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to one another, to, to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. And so in the book of Romans, in the central part of the book, chapter 6 and 7, Paul deals with the, the Christian and his relationship to the law. He says, uh, the law was my taskmaster leading me to Jesus, but, but now that we are at Jesus, now that we're in Christ, we are no longer under the law, right? We don't have to observe special rituals, special sacrifices. The whole temple system, by the way, is gone. And so this is point number two. Point number three, however... As followers of Jesus, we are expected to submit to a law. We are expected, expected to submit to a law. This comes up in a few different places, like Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, where it says, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 9, 21, To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. This is Paul talking about his uh, evangelism of the nations. And he's saying, like, to those who had the law, or those who didn't have the law, I became as if I was one of them, as if I didn't have the law. And then he says in parentheses, but I was under the law of Christ. And he says the reason for this in that same verse, that I might win those outside the law. Now, the, the interesting thing is that the Bible never actually spells out for us what is this law of Christ, right? Paul mentions it twice in these verses. But it never says, well, this is what the law of Christ is, and then boom, 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 gives a bunch of commandments. It never does that for us. But I think we might know what the answer to what is the law of Christ when we, uh, when we tune in to the, the Pharisee and the teacher who asked Jesus, what is the most important commandment? Do you remember Jesus' response? He said this, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So, just where we've been, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament law for us. We are no longer required to observe it uh, as the children of Israel did, but we are required to uh, observe something. As followers of Christ, this means something. It means we're su supposed to submit to the law of Christ. And this leads us to number four. That law of Christ is the law of love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not Love, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So, so this settles it, right? We all, we're all clear. Christ has fulfilled the law, we are not under it, but under the law of Christ, which is to love God and love one another. Sadly, this is where most of us, as followers of Jesus, stop in our understanding of the application to our lives, of the Old Testament specifically, to our lives. And we are robbed of something of the beauty and the depth and the richness of God that is seen particularly in the Old Testament. Furthermore, with this type of, uh, of, of uh, truncated understanding, we are oftentimes left wandering around God's world, not quite sure what to do. 
We aren't sure what to do with the sin that remains in our own hearts. Yes, we've been forgiven by Jesus. We uh, believe that. We're trying to follow Him, but oftentimes unsure about what to do with the sin that remains in our own hearts. We aren't sure what to do with the sin that remains in our communities. If we're just merely supposed to love one another, then won't this just, just, can't we all just get along and sing kumbaya and hold hands? We're not quite sure what to do then with the sin that remains in, in our communities. We aren't sure how to think about justice. We aren't sure how to think about caring for the poor. We aren't sure how to even manage our money. We aren't sure how to honor our mother and father. We aren't sure even to know if what we are doing is loving God and loving our neighbors or if we're merely doing something else. And so we're left aimless and unsure, wandering and anxious, nervous and stressed. And the way that we are to fight against this aimlessness is to once again return to the scriptures with particular attention on how God's people are commanded to live as God's people in God's world. So this morning what I want to do in our time together is to show you The primary means by which the stress and anxiety of today are to be combated is through the practice of Sabbath rest. Go with me to Genesis chapter 1. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, that's probably on page 1. Read with me Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now stop right there. If you've been at our church for a while, you know that oftentimes, especially in my sermons, I return us to Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, and really through Genesis 1 through 11, because in it we see the story of God creating the world and everything in it. Now this becomes important because if God created the world, and He did, then there's a reason why he created it. Are you tracking? If God created the world, then there's a reason for him creating the world. Furthermore, that purpose means that we are going somewhere. Like there's, there's a reason he created it, and that reason has an aim, right? As uh, the, the, the theological word would be the, the telos or the, the ultimate reason for why God created the world. It, it exists. Oftentimes what we find in our day and age is we've, we've uh, let science say what the, what things just exist. The things just, they just are. They don't really have a reason. They just, it is the way it is. And it's when we disconnect our everyday lives from the grand purpose, the grand narrative of what God is doing in the universe, that then we are driven to despair and lack of hope. But if God created the world, and if that world has a purpose and has an end goal, then that means it's going somewhere. So he creates the world in in chapter 1, and and he does it all in six days. Everything, the land animals, the sea animals, the birds, uh, the the, the fish, everything he creates. And then what happens on the seventh day? Look at chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So we see here that this idea of resting 
and this, this, this seventh day are, are intimately connected. You see, it's only after the first six days of work that God created everything, then he rested. This is important because there's a linear progression to the plan and work of God. That there's, You've got to go through six days of work to get to the day of rest. Now, I want to point this out to you because it's easy to miss. Look back at uh, verse 5 of chapter 1. Look at verse 5 of chapter 1. This is after God has created the first day. Verse 5 says, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Look at verse 8. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. Verse 13. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. Verse 19. There was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Verse 23, there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. Verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Now this is important because notice how the seventh day differs from the pattern that's been repeated. Look, look back at verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Heavens and the earth were finished. All the host of them, and on the seventh day God rested from his work all, and all that he had done, and on the seventh day from all the work he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now look at the very next verse. These are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. What's different? There's a pattern here, right, where, where, God, where Moses is writing and God is telling us through the words of Moses in Genesis chapter 1, there's this pattern, right? Like God does something and he says there was evening and there was morning, the nth day. And he goes on and on and on until he comes to the seventh day. The seventh day, he, the pattern doesn't repeat. There is no there was morning and evening the seventh day. Evening and morning the seventh day. It doesn't exist. What's the, what's, the, what's the point of this? This means that creation was brought to its completion on the seventh day. And this day is a day like, unlike all the rest. This is almost like a day without end. As if God has finished, completed his work. On the seventh day, God's presence fills his creation. The Lamb provides for all of God's creatures, including humans, who are appointed to rule the world with God forever kings and queens of the seventh day rest. This is what creation and its completion looks like. It looks like fullness. It looks like rest. It looks like no strife, no anxiousness, no worry. But unfortunately, that's not where we find ourselves today, is it? If this seventh day was to be a day without end, then why are we here Without rest. Well, we know in chapter 3, if you flip over to verse 22, in chapter 3, what happens is that Adam and Eve forfeit that rest. They forfeit it. Look at verse 22 in chapter 3. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You see, in God driving Adam and Eve out of the garden, he was driving them back into a world of chaos, a world of darkness, 
much like how things were before God created the world. It's from this ground that he was created that Adam will be forced to return. And the big theological point of this being driven out of the garden is that they're driven out of the presence of God, which means then that they're driven out of his rest. And so this is a problem, isn't it? God's chief creation, mankind, are now unable to be in his presence and enjoy his rest. And this is what sets up the rest of the story of the scriptures. The rest of the story of the scriptures is like, how do we get back to that? How do we enter into the rest which God is currently in because the seventh day had no end? How do we get back to that? And so the rest of the story is going to play out how uh, the people of God are continually called into this place of rest. So God sets in motion a plan to restore his people into this ultimate rest. He chooses Abram in Genesis chapter 12 and invites him and his family into the experience of Sabbath rest. Only this was not a rest merely by obeying a law, but by living out the ideal of what Sabbath would look like. Like, For example, turn over to Genesis chapter 21. Genesis chapter 21. Here we have the story of, uh, of Abraham who has come into uh, some, some, some issue with Abimelech and the order of uh, these, uh, these wells that had been dug. This is important. So look at verse 22 in chapter 21. At that time, Abimelech and Phico, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abram said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. Now watch this. This is important. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech. And the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. Now just pause right there. I'm going to say something that's going to sound wild to you, okay? Because it sounded wild to me the first time I encountered this. I just need you to track with me. There's this idea in the scriptures that the seven is symbolic more than just it is a number, right? It's symbolic of God's rest and completion, right? And he's like, oh boy, here we go. We need some kind of Bible code pass. No, 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 that's, that's not it. But there is something here. Like, think back to Genesis chapter 1. In the very first book, uh, the very first book, the very first uh, chapter, the very first line of Genesis only has seven words. Now, if you look in your English Bibles, it's like eight or nine because it's not Hebrew. But in the Hebrew language, it was seven seven words. And then in the, as he's creating, there's seven creation statements that God issues in that book. You see, there's this, this pattern of seven being the faithfulness uh, of God. And here we see Abram, Abraham uh, offering Abimelech seven lambs. And this is how he makes peace. This peace is a little taste of Sabbath in Abraham's life. So the story progresses and we find the children of Israel deep in slavery in Egypt. 
And, and what we see in that story, we won't go through the whole thing here, but, but what we see in that story is a reversal of the creative story of Genesis. We see it in Exodus. Uh, as Exodus, as God is bringing his people out of Egypt, of slavery in Egypt, we find ten statements which deconstructs Egypt to the point that mimics and mirrors its inverse of the creative order in Genesis chapter 1. You can go home and read that. But we see that the children of Israel are led out of the waters, uh, led out by the waters, right, the Red Sea. And as they're traveling through the wilderness, they learn that in order to experience the Sabbath, it will involve moments of trust in the Lord. Remember, Sabbath, rest. We're trying to find uh, a rest for our souls. Like, like, turn over to... Um, I didn't write this down. It's not in my notes. Uh, Exodus chapter 16. Exodus 16. That's it. I think. Yeah. Exodus 16. By the way, we, we find the Ten Commandments, the commandment to honor the Sabbath, to observe the Sabbath in, in Exodus 20. But here we find in, uh, in chapter 16, we find it before the commandment was given, that this idea that, that the people would pause from their daily labors and rest and focus on the Lord. We find it in practice here. Look at verse 1 in chapter 16. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the, in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether or not they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to, to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumblings that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost, on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And, Manus, and Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each of you, as much as you can. You shall take one, an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tents. So what we find in this story is that God's provision in the wilderness is already showing the people of Israel what Sabbath rest will look like because they're commanded every day to gather uh, a certain amount, right? And what you'll, if you continue reading that story uh, when you get home, what you'll find is that uh, they ate until they were full. 
They ate until they were like, this wasn't like rationed, right? This is God's overabundance to the people of Israel, showing them that they could rest from their work. And on the sixth day, they were told to gather two days' worth, one for that day and one for the next, right? This is the Sabbath rest, these, these glimpses, these tastes of what it looked like on day seven of creation and what it will look like in the new created world. That's what it means when God said that he was going to test them. Will they listen? And you find that they, they don't. They don't. Like some of them tried to go and gather it on Sunday, couldn't find any. Or they tried to gather more on one of the, one of the five days in the first part of the week and, and tried to leave it over to tomorrow and find that it has worms in it and it stinks. Right? You find these moments in the wilderness where they had to learn to experience the Sabbath that it involves moments of trust in the Lord. So Israel uh, finally makes it into the promised land. And there they begin to get taste of the fullness of Sabbath and rest. But God warns them that if they are not faithful to the covenant, they will forfeit that rest again. So they go into the land and they observe all these creative feasts. Right? If you read the book of Leviticus, what you'll find is these, uh, like these, a ton of mention of feasts, right? Uh, because for the children of Israel, Sabbath was not just the seventh day, right? This is, again, where we get back to this idea of the number seven. But it was uh, all of these feasts that, that celebrated God's rest and, and what God had prepared for his children, right? So it wasn't just the seventh day, but it was the seventh month and, and the, where they would have a, a month-long festival to the Lord. And it was a seven-day feast in the, in the first month. And then you had the, Jubilee, the year of Jubilee, which is every seventh year, all debts were forgiven. All slaves were set free, right? This, this idea that the, the, the land would be restored, right? They, they wouldn't even plant crops on that seventh year because they would trust in the Lord for providing for them. And then what you have is this what they, what, mega jubilee, right? Every seventh, seventh year, right? Every 49 years, right? Where land that had been sold uh, previously was returned to its original owner. All of this because they were practicing Sabbath. And all this came with a command that if they did not obey the Lord's commandment, they would forfeit the rest. They would be driven from the land. They would not have rest. And ultimately, this is, this is what ended up. They ended up not obeying the Lord's commandment, and they are driven from the land. But more importantly, they are driven from their Sabbath rest. Right? And so if you read the prophets, what you'll find over and over again is like, yeah, we had, we had rest, we had Sabbath, but that was taken away because we did not hearken to the voice of the Lord. But then you find the children of Israel back in the land. But what's more importantly, this time when they make it back in the book of uh, uh, Jeremiah, Ezra, uh, Nehemiah and Ezra, what you'll find is that they're back in the land, but they still can't find rest. They still can't find rest. And so the entire Old Testament culminates. You can turn here. 2 Chronicles chapter 36. 2 Chronicles Chapter 36. Now, if you have an English Bible, which I imagine you do, you may be like, uh, last book in my Bible, pastor, is Malachi. Maybe we need a new pastor. But let me tell you, in the, in the, the, he, the English Bible was not structured the same way as the Hebrew Bible was, which is the, the Bible that Jesus would have read. So this becomes important because the last words in Second Chronicles, the way the Old Testament ended was with these words in Second Chronicles chapter 36. Remember, at this time, the children of Israel are in the land of Israel already, not experiencing the full Sabbath rest. 
Second Chronicles 36, verse 22 says this, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people... May the Lord, his God, be with him. Let him go up. And that's the end of the Old Testament. If you were a good Hebrew, bi- Hebrew student and you would begin at January 1st and you would read your Bible in a year, you would get to December 31st and you would read this verse and be like, wait a minute, we, we're in the land already and yet we don't have the full Sabbath rest. So turn, to, turn the Gospel of Luke. We're going to land the plane right here. Look, Luke chapter 4. Because the Sabbath rest was highly important to Jesus. Uh, It it marked his life, a a life of rest. A life of uh, resting in God and and dwelling in the presence of God. Luke chapter 4. It's interesting, this is where Jesus has just went through the, uh, the, the wilderness experience. And then he begins his public ministry in his own hometown, according to Luke's gospel. Look with it at verse 16. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, Nazareth, where he had been brought up. As was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Listen, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's jubilee. That's jubilee. That's freedom. That's rest. That's Sabbath. Verse 20, He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, I'm pretty sure they didn't have microphones in Jesus' day. But if they did, Jesus just said, Today, in your presence, this scripture has been fulfilled. He dropped the mic and he walked out. Because this is, this is mind-blowing. Remember, the, the story of the Scriptures is that mankind, God's chief creation, the pinnacle of His creative, uh, creative order, is no longer walking in His presence, no longer experiencing His rest. And Jesus shows up, and the first thing He says in His public ministry is, we've made it. It's here now. I'm here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I am here to give you That rest is also why in Matthew uh, chapter 11, verse 28, he says, uh, all you who are uh, weary, come to me and I will give you what? Rest. I will give you rest, right? Not just like tired, like, like, listen, uh, how many of y'all ever been on vacation? A couple of you nodding your head. How many of y'all get back from vacation? You're like, man, I'm tired. You're like, I need a vacation from my vacation. Right, so the, 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 the way to which we solve our, our restfulness and our tiredness is not like more time off work. Although that's important and that's, that's good and right. But we're not ultimately going to find rest there. 
you see. The rest, the Sabbath rest, and the entire Bible and the entire Scripture was to somehow figure out how we're going to create uh, this new creation. How are we going to enter into this rest of the new creation? Listen, it's not coincidence that Jesus was murdered on a Friday afternoon. And what did the Pharisees say that, that afternoon? They said, we've got to get him off the cross. Why? Because the Sabbath is beginning. Sabbath, which ran from Friday evening to Saturday evening. So we've got to get him down off of the cross because Sabbath is here. And so they bury him in a borrowed tomb. And there he lays the entire Sabbath day. And then on Sunday... He wakes up and gets up out of the tomb. Have you ever wondered why Christianity has, the church of Jesus Christ has moved uh, the, the observance of uh, gathering together to get together to talk about the things of the Lord, uh, to, to focus on Him to Sunday? It's because of the resurrection. And if this is true, then our day of rest is no longer the sixth day plus the one. It's the first day or the eighth day of creation. You see, the, the, the implication of this is that it's new creation. It's a new creation story. What Jesus has accomplished is allowing us to enter into that rest, which is where we began the service, which Hebrews chapter 4, where the writer says, strive to enter that rest. The entire scripture is pointing you to this rest in God. So if you're going to figure out, how am I going to be less anxious in this world? How am I going to be less stressed out in this world? How am I going to make it through today? Listen, turn to Jesus. Put your focus on him. Now, I say that, that's, that's very spiritual, right? And, and, and and we say, well, you know, for Christians today, we don't really have to observe the Sabbath. It's not repeated in the New Testament like the other commandments. And so we don't really have to do this. Therefore, we can work seven days a week. And some of you do. And the question is, is can you or should you? Because while Jesus was the bread of heaven in the spiritual sense, and he fills us in the spiritual sense, you and I still eat bread, real bread, do we not? You and I still eat real food. Why? Because we have the physical sense of bread. In the same sense, Jesus is our Sabbath rest. We enter into his rest. His, his burden is light. His, uh, his yoke is easy. And yet the real physical sense is like, hey, like sometimes you just need a day off. Sometimes you just need a day off. I don't know how much you follow the Supreme Court, but they just ruled in the, the case of the USPS um, against a man who refused to work on Sundays. And unanimously, like the court never rules, hardly ever unanimously, unanimously they ruled that it's okay for him not to work on Sunday. That it's actually on the employer's role to make reasonable accommodations to not make him work on Sunday. Listen, where does this idea of we only have to work six days a week come from? It comes from God. It comes from the God of Christianity. It comes from Jesus himself. Think back again to the children of Israel in Egypt. How many days do you think they worked? A seven. Seven days. All they knew is bricks, bricks, and more bricks. It was a cruel taskmaster. And this was in its very essence a refusal to honor the God who is actually there by refusing to give physical rest one day a week. So how silly is it that we as Christians are like, nah, I'm a capitalist, therefore I'm going to work on Sunday. I'm going to work all day. Listen, I don't even care if it's Sunday, by the way. 
right? Because the scriptures are very clear, especially in the New Testament. It's not necessarily about the do's and don'ts. What can I do and what can't I do on a Sunday? But it's rather like, am I actively reflecting on the things of the Lord? Am I actively entering into real rest in Him? So friends, if we're going to be less anxious, if we're going to be less uh, worried about the world, then we've got to refocus once a week. Maybe, uh, maybe like every seventh month of the whole month or one week out of the, uh, the first month of the year. Maybe we just take a week and a time and a space and actually observe the Lord and enter into real rest. It's like, trying, it's like shooting ourselves in the foot and trying to run a foot race. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. So friends, let me encourage you in closing with this. Jesus is our rest. And yet he still calls us into physical rest as well. To deny that is to deny the good grace that he gives us. It's to place ourselves in the center of our own universe, relying on only ourselves to make our own ends meet. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the cross of Christ and Jesus and all that that means for us in our lives. That even today, 2,000 years after the death and resurrection of Christ, that you've called us to enter into the rest, into that Sabbath rest. And Father Lord, what we taste today as rest from our physical labors and and rest from the toils of the world and our sin and uh, not fully uh, metered out justice, Father Lord, as as we rest, what we do in those moments is actively put our trust and hope and faith in you. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us in this. In a day and world where we are constantly on the go, constantly needing to get things done, I I pray, Father, Lord, you would intentionally slow us down, have us pause, reflect, think, pray to you, Father. And may we remember that it's from your hands that all good things come. The abundance that we seek and desperately crave is found only in you. Pray you help us with all this and more. In Jesus' name, amen. Brother Philip.